I don't remember where I was or when it was uh, that I first heard that Pasadena Church of the Nazarene, also known as Paznaz, had hired their new pastor. But when I found out that their new pastor uh, was a young woman, I felt kind of surprised. I was familiar with Paznaz because I had gone to school at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. And so, uh, you know, it's not what I had in mind. And so I've been thinking lately about why, why did I feel surprised? Well, partly, probably because Tara Beth is about 10 years younger than me and, well, makes me feel kind of old. <laughs> but there's also the part of me that thought, wow, they hired a young woman, right? Why did that surprise me? Because I'm a part of the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, which has been affirming women in ministry for a really long time, even though most senior pastors are still men. I think I felt surprised because the truth is that my expectations in regard to what a pastor looks like has really been shaped by a culture of what we should probably call patriarchy. Right? Even if on the surface I say that men and women are created equal, when I see a woman doing what has traditionally been a man's job, my eyebrows furrow and I go, huh. Well, when I heard that Tara Beth Leach had written a book about women in ministry called Emboldened, I knew that I had to read it. And so I read it last fall and came away feeling both convicted and inspired. It left me wanting to be the kind of person who emboldens women to live into their callings as leaders among the people of God. And I came away from the book thinking, I've got to interview Tara Beth on my podcast. Well, uh, that interview happened last week, and here it is. I'm Marcus Watson, and this is episode 28 of Spiritual Life and Leadership. Uh, I'm here with Tara Beth Leach, who is the senior pastor at Paznaz. I'll let you tell us what Paznaz is, but hi, Tara Beth. Hey there. It is so good to be with you today. Yeah, I am the senior pastor of Paznaz. Been there for three years now. It's a historic church in Pasadena. And, and, and it stands for? It stands for First Church of the Nazarene of Pasadena. Yeah. Um, but somewhere along the line, it just got that nickname. I don't think anyone ever sat around a table and said, what should we call ourselves? Oh, right. how about Paznaz? It was just a community <laughs> nickname that yeah. the church eventually picked up that that they adopted. Ah, that's cool. You know, I I, uh, I was going to tell you this before we started recording, but I'll just tell you now. I've actually been there a few times. Well, a oh, couple wow. of times. Yeah. When I was, uh, so I was a student at Fuller. I did my MDiv uh, and my DMIN eventually at Fuller, but I uh, was invited to an ordination service there once. Um, that was one time. I've never been there on a Sunday morning, but I also saw the OC Supertones in concert at Paznaz back in the late 90s. <laughs> Do you know the Supertones? My, yeah. Oh my goodness. If I would have known that they had yeah. played there back uh, in the day, I, I, I saw OC Supertones in concert and the Insiders, and that was my jam. Yeah, yeah. 90s Christianity was... at its best. It was a lot of uh, middle schoolers, unfortunately, in that concert, Uh and and then me, who was in my my mid twenties, and some other friends. But it was a lot of fun. I would have been, I would have been one of those middle schoolers. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, so fun, so fun. Yeah, 
Well, let me ask you a couple of quick get to know you questions. Um, so the first one is what job would you be terrible at? I would be the worst accountant, the worst. Uh, mm. Yeah, just too many numbers. And I can read a, a finance sheet and, and can make sense of it, but don't ask me to interpret yeah. it for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I get it. Um, what would a mirror opposite of yourself be like? A mirror opposite of myself would want to stay home all the time and never be around anyone um, <laughs> and just kind of be in a hermitage. Ah, okay. So you like being out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Well, and maybe this then leads to the third question. Uh, when do you feel truly alive? Yeah, well, okay. So this kind of seems <laughs> contradictory, but... Um, I, I love to write. Uh, so uh -huh. writing, I feel truly alive, uh -huh. but then also preaching. Mm -hmm. um, there's just such a connection when I'm preaching. Yeah. And um, yeah, so those two things when I'm just uh, getting to use gifts. Very cool. Very cool. Well, um, tell you what, why don't you, uh, what I'd love to do now is just kind of hear your story. Um, so you're the pastor, pa uh, sorry, pastor at uh, uh, Paznaz. And um, I'm sure there's been a lot that has gotten you from, you know, your younger years, childhood and teen years to today. And just maybe if you can just kind of tell us in a few minutes, uh, your story, how'd you dis discover your sense of call? Um, and what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I grew up a little bit of an outsider in the church. Our family, we would attend church on, on the high important holidays and confirmation and baptism. Mm -hmm. But I would say it was more of a cultural Christianity and so when I was a teenager, though, I really started to thirst and long for more. And that set me on a really kind of personal quest. No one said you should seek this out. I was just hungry and thirsty for something. So I started uh, asking my mom to take me to church. I uh, started attending Campus Life, uh, which mm. is a lot like Young Life or Youth for Christ. Mm -hmm. And it was there through Campus Life that my mind and heart really started to open up. And the youth leader encouraged me to start reading my Bible. And so every day I would come home after swim practice and I would open up my Bible and I would start reading through. And I read through the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, which was exciting for a 15-year-old Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, yeah. not so much. <laughs> but I uh -huh. plowed through. And by the time I got to the Gospels, I started to uh, learn about Jesus in ways that I never had before. And mm. Jesus started to come alive to me uh, to the point that um, there was just a sense of longing for more and longing to know more of, and even yeah. a sense of attachment and friendship and relationship, mm. which was new to me. I uh, did not grow up in you know the evangelical world. And so mm. uh, when I was exposed to this idea of having a relationship with Jesus, it was so new to me mm. and at the same time transformative. And so by the time I got to the Gospel of Luke, I read it through in one night, and mm -hmm. I was equally devastated and equally grateful. Mm -hmm. uh, when I, I just could not comprehend the cross. I had no mm -hmm. uh, theology of atonement, and, yeah. and so the cross just did not make sense. But at the same time, mm -hmm. it made sense. Yeah. And I knew that just something had happened, and that it had to do with humanity and God's love for humanity. And I was overcome. Even though mm. I didn't know why, I, I, I was overcome. And mm. so I got down on my knees next to my bed. And the only words that I knew to say were, thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I said that over and over and over, tears eventually streaming down my face onto my Bible, and I was overcome with gratitude. And that that thank you was a way of me opening my life up to Jesus in new ways and ways that I never had before, and really learning to start following uh, in the steps of Jesus and following Jesus. And so shortly after that, I ended up um, going on a missions trip to Mexico with 20-some other teenagers and was just on a complete high. And uh, one of the nights we were doing a Bible study on becoming fishers of men, and the youth pastor stopped and he said, I think there's someone here that that God is calling into ministry. And he said, I just feel like we need to stop. So if that's you, would you just stand up so we can pray for you? And I looked around the room and I thought, there's no way that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I felt like if I had, if I didn't stand up, I was going to explode. Just pressure. Yeah. Um, wow. But not a bad pressure, a good pressure. Mm-hmm. My palms were sweating. My heart was beating. And so I stood up and was so overcome with the same emotions that I had when I was on my knees next to my bed. Mm-hmm. And again, just wept. Uh, it felt yeah. so vulnerable. Uh, before all my friends, a 15-year-old, mm. 16-year-old, so unsure of myself, it just felt so vulnerable. Yeah. And at the same time, I just knew that it was right, and I felt a release. Mm. And so they surrounded me, laid hands on me, and prayed for me. And I think they were shocked. Um, yeah. for Christ was a beautiful, wonderful ministry, formative for me. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that ministry. Mm. And also, they were fundamentalist, uh, that, mm. that chapter and uh, I don't think they knew what to do with that a woman, that a young woman stand up, stood up. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they wrestled with it through me um, as the years went on in high school. Um, you know, they affirmed a call to ministry, but they could not and did not affirm a call to pastoral ministry. You know, they told me you couldn't, I couldn't be a pastor. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that I heard the most um, in my days was, uh, and again, I, I'm so th- grateful for that ministry. My family would not be where we are if it weren't mm-hmm. for them. Um, but, yeah. but one of the most common things I heard when it came to call was, you're going to make a great wife someday, Tara Beth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, or you're going to make a great pastor's wife. And mm-hmm. then to me, when I heard those words, it didn't trouble me. It was a compliment. Mm. Uh, I was boy crazy. I, <laughs> I I just wanted to please the Lord. And so that was the framework that I was working from. And so I thought, oh, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm going to make a great wife someday. Yeah. Um, and so my imagination was, was that. I knew that I wanted to honor. I wanted to serve the Lord. I also wanted to preach. Mm. I had a longing to preach. It was you know, Billy Graham, it was the nineties. Um, Billy Graham was still traveling and preaching. I got to see him in a, in a, you know, auditorium, um, or a stadium. And I, I saw that and I thought, well, I want to do that. Mm. I want to travel the world and tell everyone about this life changing message of Jesus that has rocked my world. Mm. And people need to know, people need to know this. And so I, I wanted to preach. I would pull out my Bible. I would preach in front of my mirror. I would preach anywhere. Um, I, I, I was preaching. I would preach to my family at the dinner table. I would preach in my school. I think I, Mm. I was definitely that weirdo kid. Um, I was (laughs) zealous. And, um, I, there was a time when my girlfriends and I, we were driving in our car and I pulled over the car in the middle of the Midwestern cornfields and I started preaching to the cornfields. Uh Um, and so there was just this, there was this 
internal conflict that I didn't really know what to do with. And I wasn't obsessing over it. I really kind of felt a peace and confidence, but there was definitely that conflict. So by the time I enrolled at Olivet Nazarene University and enrolled in um, a Bachelor of Arts in ministry, I I was resistant to uh, the professors at first because uh, Nazarenes are very affirming of women in ministry. Yeah, that's what I thought. And okay. um, and so the professors would talk about women pastors, and I'd raise raise my hand and I'd say, "Oh no, not not the lead pastor." You know, that's you know, because I was formed through Youth for Christ, mm-hmm. and uh, the professors were gentle. They were patient with me, and I think they saw it as an opportunity to really come alongside of me and open my imagination. Mm-hmm. And so, one professor in church history. Um, he did something interesting. We had to um, write about um, a person in, in history, and he assigned me Amy, Amy Semple McPherson. Mm. And so I started to study her, and yes, she had a rocky history, but at the same time, I was more focused on this woman that was preaching, and people were coming to know Jesus, and um, she had a church of 25,000, and um, and people saw something in her and I thought, oh, maybe women, maybe women can pastor, maybe women can shepherd. Um, and so that sent me on a journey of a few years of really leaning into call. And uh, by the time I graduated from Olivet Nazarene University, I was a believer and my imagination was open and expanded. And so my theology was there and, uh, but I'd still never seen a woman pastor, you know, in present day. And so, um, I, you know, I ended up accepting my first position out of college as an associate pastor in upstate New York. Those were good affirming days. I preached, um, to the congregation on Sunday mornings even, and it wasn't until we moved back to Chicagoland area that I started to come, uh, I guess, a- awaken to the reality mm-hmm. for women in our denomination. Although we were affirming for women, we uh, didn't do a very good job of actually empowering them. At the time, we were at 6% of, um, of women in ministry. And, um, and it wasn't that there was a shortage of available women. Um, it's that actually women were being sidelined and that mm. there were systems that were keeping them sidelined. And wow. so um, I think it was 35% of uh, those graduating from seminary, even the Nazarene seminary were women while wow. 6% were being placed. Wow. And so, um, so just, you know, I, I really started to see the systems and I was, I was also uh, felt as though I was being sidelined and those were mm. crushing years for me. I was yeah. seeking for a place to serve within my denomination and I was not finding a place. And so um, I ended up serving outside of the Church of the Nazarene for nine years, and that was good and meaningful and wonderful time, though as a Wesleyan holiness woman, that was also hard for me. Yeah. And so um, I was actually, so I went to seminary, I went to Northern Theological Seminary, got a Master's of Divinity there, studying under amazing professors, Scott McKnight, Dave Fitch, Mm, um, Jeff Holsclaw was exposed to just this whole Anabaptist world and uh, missional theology. And again, my my mind and my world just blew up for the good. And um, I I always wondered if I was going to end up back at the Church of the Nazarene, and uh, but at the same time, I was starting to let go that they may not be a possibility. Yeah. And really out of nowhere, I mean, I, I had a conversation with a, a leader in our denomination that I was sad that I wasn't a part of it. And she ended up putting my name forth for Paznaz. And um, 
it felt like out of nowhere for me though, but they called. I, I was serving as a teaching pastor at a church in Chicago. And so when they called, it was such a shock. Um, and wow. I, I thought, no way, this is a joke. There's, mm-hmm. you know, no way that you know, they have the wrong person. Yeah. But after several months of discernment, um, it became clear that that's where God was calling our family. Wow. And, um, and, and I say family because that was even, that was a big deal for my husband. My, my husband, Jeff is, um, he is not a pastor and I say that because that's really rare in our denomination. Most women in ministry are married to pastors mm-hmm. and they're co-pastoring. And so we still don't have very many female senior pastors who are married to yeah. lay, lay people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's still, still somewhat of an anomaly. Um, and so, and my husband, he was, you know, he's left pretty significant jobs twice. He was an engineer at Lockheed Martin working on the next wow. presidential helicopter at one point. He left wow. that and he worked at Olive Garden for seven months and never mm-hmm. complained. Wow. And then he was um, climbing the ladder and doing really well at Northrop Grumman and mm-hmm. moved out here with, with no job. And, um, and now here we are. Um, and he works for Jet Propulsion Laboratory as an engineer. Oh, and he's nice. my rocket scientist engineer husband. And, um, uh. And so it's a blessing. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Now, how long have you been at Paznaz now? Almost three years. Three years. Okay. Very cool. And it's been good? It has been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Oh. Mm-hmm. Say more about that. How so? Yeah. So I think, you know, most churches who end up calling women for the first time, I think they count the cost, surely. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anyone fully understands just how costly it is to do that and mm-hmm. what a culture shift it is. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it has been very costly on our church. Yeah. Um, the bottom dropped out of the mm-hmm. place. We lost easily 600 people within the first year. Wow. Um, and it's we're still in a season of transition and trying to make uh-huh. sense of the loss. Yeah. And this new reality that we're in, um, you know, that has that has a lot of significant implications. Significant. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. it's been very costly and it's, um, it's, it, it has been hard, Marcus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so how do you personally process that and cope with that? And how do you, yeah. 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 Well, I have a great therapist. Uh, oh, good. Me too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I see. Him, I see him right after this interview. Oh, <laughs> good. Yeah. 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 Right, yeah. It's, Man, every pastor needs to be doing the hard work mm, of therapy. Um, because yeah. I really, really believe in longevity and want to be doing this for the long haul. And when I say this, I don't mean just ministry, I mean mm-hmm. shepherding at Paznaz. Yeah. And so we really, really want to dig in and um keep building our roots here. And so so um there are, you know, formational practices that are really important for me to process all of this. Yeah. Um, especially, as, you know, I don't know if you're an Enneagram person, but uh-huh. um, I'm, so I'm pretty, a nine. Yeah. Okay. I okay. Yeah, <laughs> Go on. So yeah. I understand. <laughs> most people assume that I am an eight. Um, okay. Most people assume that women in ministry are eights, um, but that's mm-hmm. not true. I'm a six wing seven. And so okay. there's so much I could say about that, about going through what we've gone through as a six wing seven. Okay. Um, and, and say real quick what, what that is just for anyone who doesn't yeah, know. Yeah. Yep. A loyalist. 
loyalist, and, right? And so for a loyalist, and there's always kind of a sense of anxiety in the background, and and I and and we are driven by fear, okay? Mm. But um, I am uh, I move against and towards my fear, and so mm. tend to be more courageous and bold. And but at, at the same time, when there's loss, it's it can be really uh, it can really mess up a six. And mm. so you know, focusing on health and um, healthy practices and reframing and, um, getting in touch with our gut intuition and listening to our gut, you know, similar to a nine, um, you know, just trusting some of those inner voices and gut instincts is really critical and getting in touch with that. And so, um, you know, just doing the hard work of processing all of that. And, um, and for me also just be, this sounds crazy, but just being in touch with my body, hiking, being on the mountains, mm, um, yeah. exercising, moving, getting my feet on the earth, being in nature and um, singing, worshiping, reading, having a strong, yeah. strong support system. Yeah. And so there's, there's so much that goes into that. Yeah. Wow. That's good. And so you have people, uh, your support system is people who are, who who walk with you. Yeah, I do. There are some really significant people in my life. I mean, my family, others in ministry. Um, I have some other dear, dear friends. Um, one, if you haven't had her on her podcast, you should Mandy Smith, author of vulnerable pastor. Um, she is a pastor out in Ohio. She was, she's the first, um, I believe still only pastor in the restorationist movement. Um, and so she, she, and she wrote a brilliant book, vulnerable pastor, but she and I stay in touch. She's teaching out at Fuller, um, this weekend. So I'm doing dinner with her tonight. And, um, so she's, she's been really just instrumental in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, this is great. We talked about the spiritual formation part at the beginning of the podcast, and that's fantastic. I, I think that's so important. Uh, I say that because I was thinking of talking about that at the end, but, uh, yeah, but and we can is, unpack uh, that yeah. more soon too. Yeah. yeah. No, well, no, and, and anyway, it's, it's great because it just flowed naturally from everything that you were saying. It's so important, um, for, well, I think generally speaking for every pastor, you know, as you were saying to have someone to process life with a therapist or a spiritual director or something like that and to process, um, all of the challenges that come, um, <clears throat> My voice is a little bit lower than normal today. I'm not sure why. Okay. <laughs> I had to clear that throat a few times. Makes for a great, <laughs> great podcast or radio voice. Oh, yeah. Own it. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, anyway, so I really appreciate everything that you just shared about the importance of of the, the spiritual formation piece and um, and and how that gives you the strength to serve in the place that you've been called to serve. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's talk about the book that you wrote and just kind of the the the, the that whole topic uh, of uh, women in leadership, uh, women in ministry. Uh, and one of the questions, maybe just to kind of open that topic, is uh, you know you titled your w- book "Emboldened." Uh, can you say something about that title? Like, why did you choose that title? Why is that important? Yeah. So I first heard that word, I don't know, five years ago, and um, and. And it was before the Trump election uh, when, uh-huh. you know, I, I feel like in some ways that word's been hijacked. And so I want to mm. reclaim it for the good mm. um, because oftentimes that's for negative connotation, connotations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for me, when it comes to women in ministry, there are all sorts of issues that women have to deal with that mm. often lead them feeling not so bold. 
um, not so confident in, in finding their voice, not so yeah. confident that they have a place. And the sense of being bold um, is, is not just that an individual is going to decide within themselves, you know, some self-help or self-talk idea, but yeah. that the church would embolden women, that brothers would come alongside sisters, yeah. that there's just this this vision of what it means to be the bride of Christ, a sense of just um, a more robust ecclesiology for women's role. Because sometimes, yeah, yeah. sometimes when we talk about women in ministry, it's through the lens of just ideology of uh, just mm. a certain kind of feminism that is that yeah. is more worldly. And I don't I'm not I'm certainly not trashing the hard work and and the good work of feminism mm-hmm. but but for me as a Christian I have a very different view of this and it's just not through this worldly ideology but instead that um and it, so and what I mean by that too it's just not about women just breaking the glass steeple, as Jory Micah right. says, or breaking the glass ceiling. But this is a gospel issue, that the gospel mm. is a gospel of reconciliation. And this is a missional issue, that yeah. for us to fully live into the mission of God, we actually need men and women in, in partnership. And right now, um, women are being held back. So we need our brothers to come alongside of them, um, to hold, you know, to come arm in arm and say, we need you, sisters. We need your gifts. We need your talents. And a sense of brothers participating and helping women finding their voices and courageously and boldly stepping into the pulpits hmm. and leading and teaching, not just preaching, but but all the gifts. Yeah. I like that you say one of the things you say in, in the book is that it's not a justice issue. It's a mission issue, yeah. which I think is kind of what you're talking about just now. Yeah. Um, when we when we frame it in just just only justice, we're missing out. And sure, there are justice issues. Um, with this, but I feel like that's an anemic way to talk about this mm. and that there are more robust ways we could talk about mm-hmm. this. One of the things you also talk about is amplification, uh, which I thought was really helpful. And uh, you talked about your brothers coming along. I imagine also sisters coming along. Well, and, and you, yeah, as I'm recalling now, you talk about women amplifying women. What, what does that mean? Amplifying? Yeah. That sounds very practical. I Sure. Think. Totally. And it is both men and women. And mm-hmm. I think women can come alongside of one another because so, okay. So when we have a mindset of scarcity, you know, mm-hmm. so Brueggemann talks a lot about, you mm-hmm. know, scarcity and abundance. And, um, and I think sometimes when it comes to women, when there's just this mindset of scarcity and believing that there's only one seat at the table and they're only going to listen to one woman and, and of course, we believe that because of the ways we've been formed and shaped in the world of tokenism. But when, when, so when we start with scarcity, our framework of scarcity, um, women aren't for one another. Hmm. We compete against one another, hmm. and yeah. we fight for that seat at the table. We fight to be heard. Um, when studies tell us that that tokenism doesn't actually change anything, hmm. um, it actually just keeps us stuck. But when there's more women uh, or, um, you know, even voices of color, when when there's more at the table, we're actually richer and better for it. And we we actually start to see shifting and changing. And so one thing that women can start doing instead of being pitted up against one another and seeing one another as competition, we can be for one another. 
yeah. elevating and highlighting the voices of one another. So for example, the Obama administration practiced this, the women on the Obama administration. Um, they, they're, I mean, and this is where I got the idea. So they, in a meeting, they would amplify the voices of another. So, so let's say there's a group of women and Sheila says something. Then Karen mm-hmm. says, wow, Sheila, that's a really good point. And then, um, and then, um, Jane says, yeah, that, that's a really good point. And they keep just hmm. highlighting it and repeating right. it. And so that way it's heard because sometimes, sometimes women just aren't heard and we can help yeah. one another. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, that's a great, just sort of practical, um, way of uh, emboldening women. Um, and uh, men can do this too, right? (laughs) Right. When they're aware, um, do you, do you find that in your ministry or are there ways that you are able to help amplify uh, or, or others have amplified you or, or how have you, have you experienced this? Oh, in significant ways. So I wouldn't yeah. be where I am if it weren't for both brothers and sisters mm-hmm. amplifying my voice. Um, truly this, I am where I am, not because I mustered strength and fought my yeah. way here. I'm here because yeah. of the church yeah. um, and the ways that brothers and sisters said, there's a gift. We need to highlight that gift and we need to come alongside of you. And, um, and even with our own staff. So, um, there had really not been a woman preaching in our pulpit in 10 years. Um, when I got to pass that, so it was pretty unheard of. Um, and so when I got there, we had a lot of women's staff, but they were, um, kind of some, some were more hidden. And so we've just been, um, amplifying their voices. We have a now another female preacher on our, on the preaching team. And so it's not just me as the only female preacher. Um, but there's another young woman in her twenties who's exceptionally gifted. Mm. And it's just been so fun to see her come alive Mm, and find her preaching voice. And so, um, and so I think across the board, you know, what it means to be co-laborers, it's men and women amplifying one another's voices. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, one of the other things that, um, you, you said uh, that uh, kind of s- struck me, I think is important is you, you said, or you encourage women to lead from their femininity. Yeah. Um, can you say something about that? Yeah, sure. So that, that is such a complex conversation I realized oh. and so nuanced <laughs> okay. um, because femininity is, is, ah, it is constructed culturally mm. um, and it's shaped biologically. Um, there's so many things to it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I mean when I say that is be true to who you are. Mm. And so sometimes when, when women are in ministry, we have one vision of what ministry and pastoral ministry looks like. And we, we sometimes don't always find our voices. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so your vision of womanhood, whatever that is, because mm-hmm. for, for some, it means, I like to get my nails painted uh-huh. and, or I see myself through a maternal lens. I'm a mother uh-huh. or I um, am more nurturing and not all women see ministry through the lens of motherhood. Not all women uh, see themselves as nurturing. Yeah. And so I think it's just most important that however you have been shaped and formed and the woman that you are, that you mm-hmm. lead out of that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's helpful. Um, your true self. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, um, and then 
uh, no doubt that you still face resistance. There's resistance out there. So, and, and so I'm kind of shifting maybe to think about some theological. How do you how do you talk about this theologically? Um, for instance, what do you say to someone who points at Genesis three, right, the, the curses, and says, "Look, there it is in the order of creation. Your husband will rule over you," or or those kinds of arguments? How do you respond to those kinds of comments and arguments. Oh, for sure. Well, so the the biggest thing for me when it comes to Genesis 3 is, are we people who allow the fall to dictate our lives or resurrection? And after Genesis 3, what happens is the fall and patriarchy becomes the backdrop, Mm. but it's not prescriptive. God mm-hmm. doesn't say, so when God in Genesis 3 begins to paint this vision of the reality of the curses, God doesn't say, well, we've now finally arrived to my ideal. Yeah. Um, the ideal is before Genesis 3. Um, the curse is the backdrop, and it's a description of how life is going to be. Yeah. And, you know, we have, and, and it's not just men will rule over, but women are going to desire, um, which that word desire is just a way of saying a, a sense of control and manipulate. Okay. Um, not like a longing of like, yeah. I long for my husband. Uh. <laughs> um, of course, I long for my husband, sure. you know, um, <laughs> but, you know, but a sense of, and so the reality of, of, of the way God is describing how things will be is that men are going to seek to rule over women are going to seek to manipulate and control. And there's just going to be a clash and a collision. Um, mm. It isn't an order. And yeah. so, so for us as Christians, especially for me as a Wesleyan holiness woman, um, for me, I don't, I, I don't know about you, but I want the resurrection to inform, um, my life. And I want, um, God's prescriptive reality of what it means to be sons and daughters of the resurrection, um, children of Pentecost, Galatians three twenty eight, And so, mm-hmm. As you know, as as readers of the Bible, number one, read our Bibles, um, mm. and, and when we read our Bibles and and we begin to read it within the entire story of God, we begin to see that um, there were women who were leaders, preachers, um, um, leaders of Israel, worship leaders, apostles, and so so then we've got to read the story of God within the whole story. Um, and then we also have to start uh, separating what's prescriptive and what's descriptive. Um, unfortunately, there's so many Bible readers that read everything as though it is prescriptive. Right, and right. so so that gets ourselves into trouble. Yeah. Um, and so um, and so you talk about then having a non-combative response when someone does confront you in with these kinds of things or claims that these things are prescriptive. Um what what do you mean by a non-combative response, and and what is what is your non-combative response? It is a challenge, um, and it's always a matter of discernment, depending what the situation is, where we are, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, and so because we are women, um, and because I'm even having this conversation, it is going to be projected upon me that I already have a chip on my shoulder and that I have an mm. axe to grind. And so yeah. I'm always aware that in these conversations that there are already people perceiving me in that light. Um, and that's one, yeah. you know, that's, that's just a constant challenge that I just have to sure. deal with. Um, and mm. so how I talk about it and um, how I enter into those conversations is tricky. Number one, I refuse to have those conversations online. Um, Mm. I just don't even Twitter, like forget about it. And so, you know, (laughs) there are definitely trolls that will troll conversations and I don't even give them time. Um, And so, so, you know, for me, I'm interested in the day in and day out shepherding people for the long haul through these conversations. 
And so, um, so what I mean by non-combative is we could just come at this and overwhelm people completely, or we could also listen and we could say, you know, tell me more about that. Let's sit down. And what if we read through the Bible together? And what if I send you away with this project of, of going through and reading the Bible and, and highlighting every single woman and tell me what she did. And then let's talk again, you know, and you can send them away with assignments. That's great. That's great. Um, and, um, and I tell you what, as you're describing um, this here, um, the fact that people will automatically uh, perceive you as having a chip on your shoulder. It's just like I'm, I'm sitting here just sort of shaking my head. Uh, it's not fair. Yeah. Um, you know, none of this is fair. Yeah. And one of the things I've learned, I don't know, just in my own life and difficult churches and yeah. people. Yeah. And man, there's so much in life that's just not fair. Uh, yeah, I'm feeling it at the moment. No, and it's not. It's not. And I think <laughs> yeah. that yeah. I think that if number one, this is why they say you've got to be called. Oh my goodness, mm. you know you've got to be mm-hmm. called to this. Um, and you know, I I want to resist the things that frustrate. I don't want to do the things that frustrate me that other people do. Meaning, yeah, sometimes yeah. the temptation is in culture is to just hit people over the head with the Bible and see conversations as though it's a cognitive proposition. I need to convince you. Mm. And yeah, yeah. isn't there just a better way in which we could have more of a what they call a charitable discourse? And mm, yeah. I. I just, I guess, have a sense of resolve knowing that this is the context that I'm in. This is the reality. And just as in pastoral ministry, there's really hard and difficult context. So what does it mean to just know that's what it is? This is a culture. So how can I enter into it and seek to understand while also at the same time being a catalyst to opening the imaginations and shepherding the church along through this? Mm, That's awesome. Um, uh, this is, uh, I just want to say, um, we'll, ra- we'll kind of close up here because this has been really good. And, um, I, I really enjoyed your book and maybe yeah. kind of as a final word, what would you say to any male or female leaders who want to embolden women? How about that? So that, and then also what would you say to women who are feeling discouraged? Sure. Yeah. So yeah. for male and to female leaders, um, it's so easy in ministry to become super myopic and be focused on our journey and our story. And um, if we could just develop a more robust ecclesiology as the church and see just the desperate need for one another um, of, of the whole church boots on the ground living into this, and then start to look around and look for gifted men and women in our midst and come alongside of them. And so if you are a leader who has gifts and power, use that for the good mm-hmm. of others who are emerging in their gifts, yeah. um, both men and women. Yeah. Um, what was your second question? And then the second question was, what, what, what would you say to women who are feeling discouraged, yeah. who feel called, but aren't feeling emboldened? Yeah. So sometimes it's time to find a new place. Um, mm. You know, it, some women feel called to fight that battle, let's say in a complementarian setting. Um, but if, if they are just making no headway, sometimes it's time to find a new place. And that's a matter of discernment. But then the next thing I want to say is it, it can be overwhelming. and we especially get overwhelmed when we think too far down the road. And so I guess my wisdom is this, take one faithful step after the next one Mm -hmm. at a time. Mm -hmm. All God wants is our faithfulness, just our faithfulness. And so what is faithfulness today? Uh, For me as a pastor, I wake up in the morning and I say, God, today, what is faithfulness? What is faithfulness today? 
For some, that's signing up to go to seminary. For some, that's having a conversation with your pastor. For some, that's sitting down and writing that first sermon and finding a place to preach it. And so what is faithfulness for you today? Oh, that's great. Wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, yeah, for sharing that. And um, how can people find you and your book and any other resources, perhaps uh, online or what, where would you send people if they want to find out more? Yeah. So, you know, books uh, um, emboldened is in most of your places online. I mean, Christian books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, mm-hmm. uh, Romans, um, you name it, um, or straight okay. from InterVarsity Press. Um, or I also sell signed ones through my website at terabethleach.com. Okay. Um, and then, you know, if they want to get in touch with me, I'm on, you know, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter okay. and Instagram handle is Tara Beth 82. And it is T A R A. Everyone likes to spell it T E R T E R R A. So T A R A B. Yeah. Good. Awesome. Hey, well, thanks, Terabeth. I I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, and blessings to you as you lead and uh, look forward to your next book, whatever that's going to be. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Blessings to you. And thanks for the ways that you embolden women like this. This is awesome. Way to go. One of the things I learned both from Terabeth's book and from this interview is that Uh, Even though my tradition affirms women in ministry, we've still got a lot of work to do. I still have a lot of work to do. I need to become more aware of when women are being sidelined, maybe even when I'm doing the sidelining. And I need to more intentionally amplify the voices of the women who are in the room, not merely so that women's voices can be better heard, which is important, but also because without the voices of all of God's children, men and women, we will far less effectively live out our calling as the church to bring healing and wholeness to the world. Well, if you'd like to connect with Tara Beth, you can, as she mentioned, follow her on Twitter at at Tara Beth 82. That's T-A-R-A-B-E-T-H 82. And uh, I also invite you to check out uh, her church's website, Paznaz. It's www.paznaz.com, P-A-Z-N-A-Z. And of course, be sure to read Tara Beth's book, Emboldened, and I will include a link in the show notes for that. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter at at Marcus Watson, and you can reach me by email at Marcus at MarcusWatson.com. Well, thanks again for being here again uh, this week, and I look forward to being with you again next time here on Spiritual Life and Leadership.